sometimes our timing is off a little bit. Uh, sometimes we're not quite in the right place at the right time. At least it wouldn't seem that way. I spend a lot of my time, our family uh, spends a lot of our time on the sidelines at sporting events. Many of you have been through this season of life and it seems like you spend hours upon hours upon hours. And every once in a while, while you were there, as I did earlier this week, you realize that you have to go to the bathroom. You actually have to leave the sidelines for just a moment. And so when I thought the moment was right, I ran around the field over to the concession stand, used the bathroom, and came out just to find out everyone is cheering and my daughter has scored a goal and I missed it. Of all the hours, and there's no instant replay, all the hours that I've been standing on the sidelines and I missed it. Or did I? Because actually when I came up, I ran up from the bathroom, ran up to the fence to see what everyone was cheering about. And one of the assistant coaches on the team, he yelled over and he said, you missed it. And I said, yeah, thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. But then he came over and he said, actually, I need to talk to you for a minute. He said, I know that you're a pastor and I'm a teacher in the Clarence School District and there's this thing that's happened this week. There's this crisis going on in Clarence. There's this family that's had a tragedy there in Clarence. And I know it doesn't, we haven't given names yet, but they are looking for the family pastor. Do you know this family? Are you the family pastor that they're looking for? I wasn't, but I was able to have a conversation with that coach as to ways we as a church want to make ourselves available or, or, or congregation members in our church that are affected by this tragedy. And so seemingly in the absolute wrong place at the wrong time suddenly became the right place at the right time. If you're here this week and you haven't been here for a few weeks, if you're here this week and this is your first time here, or if you're here this week and you've been here every week this year, perhaps today you are at the right place at the right time because God is going to say something to you here this morning. I haven't met all of you. I've met many of you. My name is Pastor Milo. I get to serve here as lead pastor. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Esther. So would you get your Bibles out if you haven't already? On the book of Esther, we are in Esther chapter 4 today. If you were here last week as we went through, if you know the book of Esther, last week when we were looking at chapter 3, we were staring evil in the face. What do I mean by that? We start to get at who Haman really is, this character Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and he is evil, it seems, through and through. And then secondarily, not just Haman, but we, we talked to and we've seen and we've interacted with the king Xerxes, and he's, he seems even more evil because now that, that Haman has concocted this plan, it seems as though King Xerxes isn't going to do nothing about it. He's going to be passive and just allow it to happen. And as chapter 3 closes, we see them eating and drinking, having a glass of wine, partying it up while total chaos is going on all around them. So today we're going to get into that a little bit. Today we're going to dive into what does the Bible have to say here for us in this type of situation. But I do want to talk about time. 
I do want to open this morning thinking and, and kind of framing time as this is the most important element in our life. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be slowed down. It cannot be sped up no matter how many times we try to do it and how many Star Wars movies we make. It cannot happen. Time cannot be saved. It cannot be reused. It cannot be reversed. Once it's gone, it never comes back. It's fleeting. And we know it's so important to us that we cannot live without time. If you have a watch like I do, you wear it all the time. Ironically, my watch this morning, this watch that I wear nearly every week, is the type of watch, it's made out of wood. And, and what happens is the barometric pressure when it changes, when temperatures go up, temperatures go down, my watch is completely useless because the wood swells and it freezes the, the clock. I can't, that's not the right time. I'm telling you right now, that is not the right time. It says 12.15. That's not right. That's not right. You know that we started our service here this morning at 10.15. I started speaking just a moment ago at about 10.46. And so in your mind, you've done the math as to when time is going to go and what's going to happen and when you get to leave this morning. Some of you will be checking your watch. Some of you have got a stopwatch running right now. And that's okay. Time is very important to us. We've got clocks everywhere. We've got stopwatches. We've got time in our clocks, in our cars, on our nightstands, in our kitchens, on our computers. We're always so aware of time. We measure our lives by time. When we travel, we're more interested. Now, if, if you've traveled recently or you look at Expedia and look where somewhere that you want to go, you actually measure it by how long will it take me to get there. It's completely irrelevant how far away this place is that you are going to. So how far would it be from Buffalo to Los Angeles or New York to Los Angeles? We don't know about that or think about that in miles. In miles, that's almost 4,000 miles. But in time, we think about it that way. Well, it's about five to six hours in a plane. What about your commute to work? Do you think about how many miles it is for you to drive to work? Or do you think about how many minutes you'll be spending, how many hours you may be spending in the car, depending on where you live? When you go to the DMV, do you think about how far you travel in that line to the front? Or do you think about how long that you've waited in line? Of course. When you think about how much you get paid at the end of the month, you compare that to how many hours you've worked. Time is very important to us. And it's hard to keep time. And it's hard to keep up with time. And sometimes it's hard to understand time. And so we put them in these big, big categories. We say there's time in the past, there's time in the present, and then there's time in the future. These enormous categories that we work with. We define them that way, we divide time up in that way, but if we really think about it, and this is where I want to spend our time today, our, our moments that we have here together, if we really think about it, all we really process is the time that's in the past and the time that's in the future. The things that we regret from the past and the things that we hope for in the future, rarely do we consider the present moment in which we are in right here and right now. And this is where the book of Esther comes in, particularly this chapter 4. What does Esther have to tell us about time and the time that we interact, or the way that we interact with time, past, present, and future? So let's do a quick Netflix recap, if you will. Most of you watch your shows on Netflix, and you see at the beginning is a quick recap of where we've been. This is where we've been already in the book of Esther. It's one of only two books in the Bible that are named after a female. 
And so it's also one of only two books in the Bible uh, that never gives God's name specifically in the book. It's a unique book. It's a different way to kind of look at things. It begins in the third year of the reign of King Xerxes. Uh, He starts, if you remember, there's a seven-day banquet that he gives uh, for his people. And on the last day of the banquet, he tells his wife to come out and come out only wearing a crown so that she could be shown off for all to see. And so she, Vashti, she refuses to come. She didn't want her beauty to be shown in this way. She did not want to be put up on a pedestal. She refuses, and he's furious with her. And he issues a decree that she can never come back into his presence again on the counsel of some wise guys uh, that are there serving with him. So a search begins. They begin looking for a new queen. Many young women in the area, in the region, uh, in the nation are selected. They are chosen. Most likely this means that they were taken from their homes against their will. But nonetheless, they are being selected for this beauty pageant. And we find this beautiful Jewish girl, this girl who had been adopted after her parents both died, by her older cousin, a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. She's taken then to live, when she is taken to be part of this beauty pageant, to live in the king's palace, placed in the care of Haggai, who is in charge of the king's harem. And while there, Mordecai makes sure that she strictly uh, adheres to everything that she's told to do, but specifically he tells her, do not ever say, do not ever let the cat out of the bag that you are of Jewish heritage. She finds favor, we are told, with Haggai and receives preferential treatment. Esther received the best food, the best care, the best prep, the best beauty treatments for this one year as she was going to get her turn to spend a night with the king. The book of Esther beautifully shows God's sovereignty in the way that he works in the life of Esther. She always seems to be at the right place at exactly the right time. As we turn the page, chapter 3 to chapter 4, the Jews, they are facing what looks like extermination. That genocide is about to happen, and while their king Xerxes is having a drink to just see it all unfold, this highest noble Haman is sadistically going after the Jewish people. He is making sure of that because he is an Agagite. We talked about that last week, that they've always been at war with the Jews. But the reality is that God has already made provision for their rescue. Esther has no idea, but she is going to be used as God's way to save her people. When we come through a week like many of you have come through, some of you are completely removed from this situation in Clarence, completely removed from the news and you don't know what's going on, but some of you are deeply affected by the pain, the suffering, the real kind of evil nature of what seems to be going on there. Anytime that there is a murder-suicide, it is awful, awful. What we see as we turn the page and begin to look into chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to see that God's providence permits some things to happen, allows for some things to happen. That God does not rescue us, save us, pull us away from the world that we live in, but is well aware of the world that we live in. Here's what's going on. Let's read it again. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, the plan, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, 
because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Verse 3, in every province, province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there became additional mourning among the Jews. There was fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and in ashes. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and the female attendants came and they told her about Mordecai, she also was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Here's what's going on. God in his providence permits desperate situations. God's providence permits desperate, dangerous, tragic situations to occur. What Mordecai learns of is this plot to extinguish all the Jews that are living there in Persia. He puts on sackcloth and he covers himself in ashes and he goes out in the city wailing and crying and moaning in sorrow. And he's not the only one. The Jews as a whole, many here we see are doing it. We read about this in many other times in Old Testament Scripture and, and even in the New Testament we see it as well. This is a very Jewish way to, to, to mourn and grieve. That's exactly what Mordecai is doing. Oftentimes, as I was studying this week and kind of reading into it and understanding what's going on in this text, we can actually see that Mordecai actually personifies what the Holy Spirit does on our behalf and how, he, how the Holy Spirit mourns and grieves on our behalf. In many ways, Haman also personifies what the enemy does to continually deceive and to continually try to muck up what God is at work doing. As he's wearing these sackcloth, as he's wearing these ashes, Mordecai could not enter the king's gate. So what's actually happening is at times you need to be reminded that people who are in power are often isolated from what's really happening on the ground. People in power are often isolated, so they, they make these decrees. This happens. Xerxes gives his stamp of approval. He has no idea what this really means out in the streets. And the reality is, is that Mordecai is not permitted to come into, and so he will never see what Mordecai is doing. He's not actually seeing what's happening on the ground there in the nation of, of why all of these Israelites, why all of these Jews in Persia are in tremendous chaos. He never sees it. And we actually find that, that his queen, his wife, Esther, is completely unaware as well. Completely protected, completely isolated, far, far away from all the pain, all the sorrow, all the distress. And Mordecai finds that it is his responsibility to bring the pain to them. As morning spreads throughout every province where the Jews receive the news, they are receiving their faith. They are finding out this declaration is being read. The herald is standing in the court square letting them know, reading this edict of the day and the time that they would be eliminated from society. And, and Mordecai is out there. And, and Esther's servant girls and eunuchs, they see Mordecai mourning. And when they come into work in the morning, they let Esther know what's going on. And Wester, when she hears about Mordecai, she's concerned about him, about his behavior, about why he's so upset. And so she sends one of her employees, the king's eunuch, Hathath, to find out why Mordecai is so distressed. We need to be reminded as we go through life that God permits desperate situations to occur. We've seen this as the theme so far in the book of Esther, that just 
God is present. And just because he is aware of what's going on does not mean that he intervenes and stops what's going on. He permits it to happen because in doing so, as we will see, he is going to get the greatest glory. Here's the second point, is that God's providence extends unique and specific opportunities. God's providence extends unique and specific opportunities. Let me explain beginning in verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai then told him everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text, <coughs> excuse me, the text for the edict of their annihilation, which had been published there in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and to beg there for mercy, plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther all that Mordecai had said. God's providence extends unique opportunities. As this plot is coming together, Esther is completely isolated from it, unaware of it altogether. But as Mordecai brings her the news, as Mordecai, who is well aware, he, is, he works there in the city gate, he is one of the closest advisors to the king, as he sees this all come together, he lets her know. And he gives her the very exact information she needs to know that this is not hearsay, this is legitimate concerns. The exact amount of money that Haman had promised to, to commit there to the royal treasury. All of the details of why this, this would be politically advantageous for the king. The reason why exertions would sign off on this altogether. So it's going to make him money and give him more power and correct the wrongs that he had made in battle on his own. All of those things were going to be corrected by exterminating the Jewish people. What Xerxes doesn't know is that his new bride, his new queen, is right in the center of his bullseye. Haman is going to contribute to the royal treasury to make this plan go through. And Mordecai gave a copy then of the king's edict to present to her and explain to Esther so that she would understand the gravity of the situation that they were in. Mordecai is, is instructing her to urge Esther, you must go. You must go to the king. You must plead to him for the mercy of your people. This is a unique opportunity for you, is what he's saying. Up to this point, Mordecai had given her the counsel. Mordecai had spent time making sure this is the, the adopted daughter. He has made sure that her identity is never shared. But he's saying, now you're going to have to do something. There's a unique opportunity that you alone can step into. God's providence will do that. God's providence will extend unique opportunities for you and for me that are entirely different from the person who is sitting next to you. In God's providence, being at the right place at the right time will determine the conversation that you will have this week with an employee that I will never have. God's providence will make sure that when tragedy happens, being at the right place at the right time, that you are in a situation where you are the only person who can respond and talk about the greatness and the glory of God. 
God's providence extends to us. Unique, specific, identifying opportunities that are only for that specific individual. Mordecai's instructing Esther, he said, only you can do this. To plead for the mercy of the king on behalf of the people. Which leads us to our third point. God's providence compels decisive action. Let me explain. Look at verse 10. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the kings, all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who would approach the king in the inner court without being summoned has but one law, that they would be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And she says, it's been 30 days since I was called in to go to the king. So this messenger, this Hathak did everything that Mordecai had instructed him to do. He reveals Haman's plot. He makes sure that, that she knows what's going on. She makes sure that, that Esther, as he's returning back to this message to Mordecai, he delivers that message. And, he, and she makes sure that he understands, that Mordecai understands, what's at stake here. That if she were to go into this inner court and speak to the king, that she would certainly be put to death unless he were to demonstrate mercy on her by holding out his gold scepter. That other than that, that is the only option that she has as an uninvited guest, even as the queen in all the land. If she comes into that space without that gold scepter being extended, she will be put to death. And even though she is the queen, as we've talked previous weeks, she still is, is pretty powerless in this system. She still only comes and goes when she is told to. She only has enough power to do what she's allowed to do. And for her to assert herself in this way would be tremendously dangerous. Almost certainly Particularly if he's not interested enough, he hasn't seen her in 30 days, it would appear that she's not necessarily in his line of sight. And she'd surely end up being killed, put to death. Verse 12. When Esther's words reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think for a moment that because you are in the king's house, that you alone, out of all of these Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, he says, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Probably the most, most definitely the most famous line in this passage. Perhaps you have come to this royal place, this royal position, this place of prominence, this unique opportunity for such a time as this. God's providence compels decisive action. He tells her, perhaps this is why you have been placed here, but you're going to have to make a what? A decision to act. These messages, they've gone back and forth between Esther and her cousin, and as they're going back and forth, these messages go back and forth, they continue, and as they are responding to one another, they are realizing as this message is being sent back, the warning comes to her, don't you think for a moment that you are safe where you are? 
I said this morning, we can look often in the past and regret the past. If each and every one of us, you've heard this analogy before, if, if, if we said roll, roll the tape and our lives are displayed on the big screen for all to see, there are plenty of things in my life, there are plenty of things in each and every one of your lives that you would not want to make the cut for the highlight reel, would you agree? There are things in our past that we would regret. There are things in the future we dream about, and oftentimes it's in contrast with what we've experienced in the past. Things in the future that we would hope for ourselves or for our family, for our children, for the next generation perhaps. Things that we would dream about. God-given dreams often. But sometimes God's providence is going to require in this moment, for such a time as this, decisive action to be for a decision to be made, for a choice of one or the other, the red pill or the blue pill, the road to the left or the road to the right, a choice is going to have to be made. Do not think for a moment because you're in the king's house that you alone will escape. You cannot stay here. You cannot be silent. You must make a decision. Even though she was royalty, her status did not ensure her safety. Yes, she was the queen, but she was also a Jew. If she said nothing, Mordecai reminds her of the sovereignty and the providence of God. That most likely, even if she were to perish, that God would use, because God is who God is, another family, another person, another redeemer. Mordecai then spoke to what had often been quoted, and who knows but what has come to this royal position for such a time as this? Who knows, he says. Well, God knows. God's providence requires decisive action. Look at verse 15. You'll see some decisive action. Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. <coughs> the decision has been made. Go, gather together, she says, all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my attendants will also fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and he carries out all of Esther's instructions. God's providence requires personal God's providence, the way that God moves behind the scenes, we talked about this the first week, when the music fades and all is stripped away and you hear still that musical undertone, that carrying along, that God is at work in everything that we see and everything that we do. God's providence still requires a personal faith at such a time as this. When this is done, she says, I'll go to the king, even if against the law. If I perish, I perish. I doubt any of us has said that in our lifetime. The closest we can get to that is perhaps some type of military analogy, the band of brothers. I'm, I'm going to take the hill, and if I die doing it, that's what I'm going to do. The courage that we see in Esther is going to require a personal 
faith. So she gathers the Jews together. She encourages Mordecai, gather all the Jews together in Susa. Now this in and of itself is going to bring attention to herself. She tells them to fast for three days. She promises also that she, on the inside of the isolation chamber, that she too is going to be fasting and praying with her maids. This king who had chose Esther to be his next queen was going to learn what that actually meant. Because now she realizes that she stands in a place, that she sits on a throne where her influence could be used to save the people of Israel. When the time of prayerful preparation was complete, she would go. She says, I will go before him. I'm going to go before Xerxes, even if it means my death. If I perish, I perish. But right now, I'm making the decision that that's what I'm going to do. And you see this change that's happening even as we read the text. That now she's the one giving instructions to Mordecai. She has made a choice. She has made a decision that requires a personal faith. Perhaps, she says, if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. But I will go. She's in the right place at the right time. See, we can look in our past and we can have regrets for the past. We can look at the future. We have dreams for the future. When we look at what's happening here in this text, what, what, what kind of jumps off the pages, Mordecai, has, has, he, he looks in the past and he, he realizes that he did not bow the knee to Haman. Perhaps he would do that differently. Maybe that wouldn't be the time, the place, the situation that he would take his stand. Because if he, if he didn't do that, maybe all of Israel would not be in danger. Perhaps. There's not much he can do about that right now, though, is there? The only thing he can actually do anything about, the only thing that Esther can actually do anything about, is this moment right here and right now. Sometimes... The right time is right now. Being at the right place at the right time is one thing, but the right time being right now is when God's providence requires personal faith. You notice here, as the passage starts to change chapters from chapter 4 to next week will be in chapter 5, it says this, in the beginning of the next chapter, it says, On the third day Esther put on her robes and went in to see the king. On the third day, Esther was going to go in and see the king. On the third day, the day of resurrection, Christians, she is going to go in and see the king. This is our clue for next week, but we'll get there next week. If you'd laid the book of Romans the New Testament passages that we see, the gospel as, as Paul has written it out for us to be able to articulate what the gospel actually looks like right here and right now, we would be somewhere along the lines of chapter 5 in the book of Romans. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. What is going on here? as we study and as we look, as we read this story of Esther, is because of the actions of one man, all of the nation of Israel, all of the Jews are now in danger. 
Because he refused to bow the knee to Haman, as evil as he was. Because of his actions, now because of one man's actions, all of the people of the nation are now in danger. And there is a day and a time on the calendar that they're going to be exterminated from existence. One man has made all of the nation guilty. One man makes all of them guilty. And then, the one who has minded her own business, Esther has done everything that she was told to do because she is part of the Jewish population, because she is a Jew by birth, regardless of her current status, she too is guilty as charged. She too is to be exterminated, to be removed, to be under death sentence on the same day and place as Mordecai. And so what it requires is that there would be one who could potentially make them all innocent before the king. Romans chapter 5 verse 17 says this, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more would those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? The contrast that is being played out for us in the New Testament as we look through all of time and all of history and the grand story that's being told, and we see it as the snapshot here in the book of Esther, is that through one man, Adam, sin enters the world. And because of that sin, as we've talked, the world is vile and corrupt and awful. And anytime we want to pat ourselves on the back that we are somehow removed from the world, be reminded that you are part of the human condition, part of the depravity of man, that you are a human being and you are a sinner if it were not for the grace of God. By the grace of God, Jesus lives a perfect and sinless and holy life. And He gave Himself, gave Himself, gives Himself as a sacrifice, as an atonement for your sins and for mine. And by doing so, His action then creates this opportunity that the gift of righteousness would reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. This gift allows you and I to stand righteous before the judge. That's a beautiful story. One has made many guilty because of many being guilty, although innocent is also guilty. When Jesus walks this earth, He is innocent, but He is part of the human condition because He is born into the human nature. This is this, this great 100% of man, 100% of God, all tied together. How do you get 200% into I don't know. But that's what happens. I can't guarantee you tomorrow. Whatever dreams for the future you have, whatever hopes for the future you have, whatever ways that you want your kids to succeed, your grandkids to succeed, I cannot guarantee you tomorrow. I cannot guarantee you safety in your vehicle when you leave here today, and you know this to be true. I cannot guarantee a Bill's victory this afternoon either. When the right time is right now, we we learn and we are reminded and we grab a hold of the only thing that we know is that today is the day of salvation. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he describes how this earth is not our home. He describes how our lives here are like a temporary tent. We're, we're, we're just moving through this world. We're not putting down roots. We're not permanent in any way, any shape, any form. And the older that we get, the more we realize that to be the case. And just like a tent begins to get tears and begins to, to fall apart and begins to, 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 to not be all that we hoped it would be for a home, He reminds us that we groan with the sorrows of this life and the pain and the ailments that come with this sinful world. How we long for our heavenly dwelling. As the band comes forward this morning, chapter 5, beginning verse 20, says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you, Brian likes to use this as he knows. What, what a biblical way to say it. But we implore you, the Apostle Paul says. We beseech you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might be made in the righteousness of God. As go, God's co-workers, we urge you, do not receive God's grace in vain. In the time of my favor, I heard you, he says, in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time for God's favor. You hear that word again? The way that God shows his favor, his providence in the life of Esther, the way that her life, it just seems like everything is happening, that she's in the right place at the right time, but the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. I tell you, now is the time for God's favor, now is the day of salvation. You are here this morning, and you're reading the book of Esther with us. You're hearing this story, and you say, that is a really weird story. We would agree. There's a lot of strange things going on. But if for some reason all you've heard from me is a good story, and you miss the point of what God is doing, not just in this passage, but through all of His Word, not just in this moment and this time, but through all of time. If you miss it, don't miss it this morning, please. Today is the day of salvation. She says, if I perish, I perish, but I am deciding, I am making a personal choice, a personal decision of personal faith that God is going to have to do something here. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, perhaps today is the day for you. You've been involved in the church for many years. You've been coming to this building, coming to a building like this your entire life. You know the book of Esther as well as anyone. And yet, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there in time, if not this very moment now, where you put a personal faith in God, specifically in Jesus Christ, the one because sin entered this world through one, it's going to require the one, Jesus Christ, to deliver the gift of righteousness for you and for me. You may not have grown up in the church. Maybe you are coming here today and you feel like you've, you've had plenty of time to, to sow your wild oats. You've been on the run. You've been doing whatever you want. And you're coming face to face this morning with a wall, a barricade, something you cannot reconcile 
of the darkness in this world and the darkness in your heart and in your life, the relationships that are broken everywhere you look, and there's no way to understand how that's happening but for the grace of God. Right time is right now. Today is the day of salvation. This morning, if you would pray something like asking the Lord to make it very clear in your life a moment that you gave everything to Him. Dear Jesus, the Bible says I'm a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says I cannot save myself no matter what I do. I believe it. The Bible also says if I confess my sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. I believe that as well. The Bible says there's a gift of eternal life for me if I would just accept it. Lord, I accept you into my heart here in this place today in Jesus' name. Today's a day of celebration. We can have hopes and dreams for the future, but if we know Jesus Christ, we need to celebrate right here and right now. And so in a moment, we will sing a song that begins with the words, I love you, Lord. Your mercy never fails me. All of my days, I could be focused on so many other things, but I'm going to focus right here and right now on the goodness and the glory and the greatness and the beauty of God. Even in the midst of my trials, even in the midst of my temptations, even in the midst of my sorrow, I'm going to focus on you. Lord, you are good. Would you join us this morning? Lord, we love you and thank you. Lord, will you move in our hearts here this morning as we sing and give glory and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.